I could tell you the story about Brandon the Builder, Old Nan said. That was always your favourite. Thousands and thousands of years ago, Brandon the Builder had raised Winterfell, and some said the Wall. Bran knew the story, but it had never been his favourite. Maybe one of the other Brandons had liked that story. Sometimes Nan would talk to him as if he were her Brandon, the baby she had nursed all those years ago, and sometimes she confused him with his uncle Brandon, who was killed by the Mad King before Bran was even born. She had lived so long, Mother had told him once, that all the Brandon Starks had become one person in her head. Over the years since A Game of Thrones was written, Old Nan's memories of so many Brandons running together has grown from an endearing detail to a meta-statement on the history of House Stark on the cyclical nature of the world, possible magical elements within the bloodline, while simultaneously suggesting darker deeds that stand in contrast to the heroic feats of architecture attributed to him. Speaking of dark, was there a Brandon the Bad? Actually, there was. And a Brandon the Good. There have been all kinds of Brandons who have led all kinds of lives, including the awful fates of certain Brandons like his murdered uncle. That one probably isn't Bran's favorite story either. Regardless, Westeros itself will continue conflating Brandons with other Brandons, as Old Nan capably demonstrates. That includes the Maesters, whose records of these ancient Brandons are barren. Historical confusion is not just possible, but likely, given the lack of written records. The Werewood Network might give us readers some answers. Bran might look back far enough to see his own ancient namesake. He might not like what he sees. But in a story where history oft repeats itself, where we dance on the strings of those who came before us, the Brandon Starks who have come before can tell him and us much about the Brandon Stark of now. So we hope he takes that look. That said, THE Brandon Stark who started it all is the best place for us all to get started, and that's Brandon the Builder. Though it's incomplete, we think you'll like this story of the first Brandon Stark far more than the current Brandon Stark does. Hello and welcome to this episode of History of Westeros podcast powered by the Disputed Lands YouTube channel. Amanda, a.k.a. Crow Food's daughter, collaborating with us on this one. Schedules didn't allow her to be a part of the recording for this episode, but she contributed a huge portion of the writing to this episode. Check her out at Disputed Lands on YouTube. Thanks to supporters like Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, writer of Mazla Cartho, a white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. And Jeff Gnarly the Longsnapper, History of Westeros' first sword. History of Westeros is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Here's one of our partner Agora Network shows with a quick preview. Give them a listen. Hello and welcome to an advertisement for Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. The show exists because I inherited at least three record collections, some from random strangers, and I decided to launch a project to listen to every one of my records. In each episode, I will attempt to reconstruct where I got the record, tell you a history of the artist, place the record in context, and then tell you what I thought about the record. The extensive show notes will include links for listening along as we go, so this can be a participatory experience. So join me as I attempt to understand why I own a spoken word T.S. Eliot record, a record of Greek folk music, and at least five albums by the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. Thank you for listening to my advertisement, and I hope you find the answers you seek in your record collection.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is an episode of firsts and lasts. We'll start with Brandon, the basics, and then go on to the first Robert, the first Brandon, the first Stark, and the first King of Winter. Then we'll come back with the last hero and the last Brandon. Enjoy. Deep down in the crypts of Winterfell lies a question. Well, quite a few questions, really. One in particular for us to focus on here, though, is the legendary figure who built Winterfell buried within? Did Brandon the Builder design his own final resting place? The presence of a cave-in or a collapse of some kind on the lower levels is spoken of very early on when Robert and Ned visit the crypts. That may conceal our potential answer, perhaps because we're not meant to know, or not meant to know yet. But we'll consider the question throughout this episode, and its companion episode, The Buildings of Brandon. We do know it was a long time ago. The stories tell us Winterfell was raised by Brandon the Builder, and also the Wall, possibly the Hightower, Storm's End, and others. Very recently, though, young Bran Stark himself was also trapped in the crypts after a collapse above. In that sense, he is following in the footsteps of his famous ancestral namesake in a most unusual and dangerous way. The Starks have always been a bit hardcore, what with multiple examples of kids choosing the crypts as a play place. Fun in the crypts, a family tradition. So too is it a family tradition of House Bolton to rise against the Starks. Roos and Ramsay may never learn how close they came to killing Bran via accidentally trapping him in the crypts. But thanks to Hodor opening the door, they live on. Normal humans could never have performed that feat of strength. Hodor himself was barely able to do it. Their escape was almost impossible. This too echoes the ancient Brandon the Builder, who, as we just went over, did quite a few seemingly impossible things himself and may have had a giant or several giants helping him. Willingly or not, by the way. Same as it is for Hodor, who likes to help his friends but does not like to be body snatched. So while we wonder all the while whether Brandon the Builder's bones lie buried beneath Winterfell, we also wonder about his life and beyond. Whatever we can unearth about him could apply to young Bran Stark and vice versa. What's true for one Bran Stark could be true for the others. As we would do if we were starting a construction project of our own, we'll lay a foundation and work our way out from there. Brandon, the basics. What people remember most about ancient figures, whether real or fictional, are their deeds. None of the stories really tell us what Brandon the Builder looked like. There's almost nothing about his personalities, or his beliefs, or his interests. It might sound 
a bit harsh, but the bar is really high for legends. Most things are too boring to survive the eons in story form. If Bran and the Builder had wings, the legends wouldn't let us forget that because, wow, a dude with wings? What the hell? But stories of Bran and the Builder's enduring love or hate of, say, fish stew just aren't memorable enough to survive the passage of time. That said, even the deeds of Bran and the Builder are not entirely clear. But... They are more clear than the individual bearing that name if he was even an individual. Yes, that's right. Not only are there seemingly endless Brandon Starks, but we have to contend with the possibility that there were multiple Brandon the Builders, or deeds by other Brandons credited to Brandon the Builder. We can be confident he or they lived during the Age of Heroes. Like all first men of that era, he likely descended from the first men of the Dawn Age who came to Westeros across the Arm of Dorne before it was broken. If the humans of the Dawn Age built castles or established noble houses in Westeros, we have little to go on. The pact marked the transition of the Dawn Age into the Age of Heroes, where it seems that not only was humankind no longer in a state of constant war with the children, and to a lesser extent the giants, but they adopted worship of the old gods and were slowly able to learn some of the secrets of the Weirwood Network. Popular legend says that during the Age of Heroes, the Long Night fell upon Westeros, and this is when Bran and the Builder's name starts to appear in the stories. Not so much with fighting the others, though he certainly might have helped, but the stories that mention Brandon seem to be most associated with what came afterwards. Given that the Wall and Winterfell were said to have been built right after the Long Night, and given that he is also the founder of House Stark and the first King of Winter, then we can see a somewhat straightforward scenario here. It seems that Brandon's building efforts were focused on preventing another invasion of the Others and ruling the North. And that is very typical. A monarch's right to rule derives in large part from their ability to protect the kingdom they are claiming dominion over. A king who cannot protect their people is no true king. We've heard a dozen variations on that theme in A Song of Ice and Fire and from the histories of Earth. But if Brandon the Builder failed to protect his people, we don't hear of it. As far as we know, he built, and he ruled, and the one helped the other. That's a powerful figure right there, but he did it at a time of weakness, a time when the world was recovering from perhaps the worst collective assault humanity has ever faced. Which is... Not to say Brandon saw a cynical opportunity to seize power and took it, but we also can't really dismiss that idea either. Regardless, he was effective enough that he is among the top three to five legendary figures in all of A Song of Ice and Fire history. This is extremely important to a central straightforward theme of A Song of Ice and Fire, power. And one of the many ways power is maintained in Westeros is family. There is enormous value in having a connection to a powerful house through blood or marriage. In the currency of noble houses, wealth means less than age when determining prestige. For example, the Freys are far more powerful than the Danes, richer and stronger both, but which of the two is held in higher esteem? Which of the two is actually married into House Targaryen? The Danes are even older than the Starks, while the Freys are only about 600 years old. The Danes have a famous founding story, and of course Dawn backing all this up. The title of Sword of the Morning is famous throughout Westeros, and has been for a long time. But even the Danes lack a named founding figure, unless you want to give credit to the meteorite. In terms of holding on to power for as long as they have, the stark claim of having direct descent from the most important known figure in the entire history of the North is something no other house can overcome. Most of the figures from the Age of Heroes have deeds ascribed to them that seem to span more than a lifetime's worth of work, but among them only Brandon the Builder has such stark evidence. 
Defeating a sea dragon or siring a hundred children could be a metaphor or an exaggeration, or a bit of both. Some of the ancient stories are surely outright in-world fiction, but stone structures that stand the test of time present fewer alternative explanations. You can invent a legendary founder out of thin air and pass that story down, but Winterfell is a real thing. There may have never even been a sea dragon, but Westerosi people can't deny that the wall is real. Brandon the Builder is credited with not only the wall in Winterfell, but also other legendary structures such as Storm's End and the High Tower of Old Town. Some of these are more believed than others, and the very concept of one person doing so much presents a challenge. Castles can take a generation or more to raise. Harrenhal took 40 years. To be fair, Storm's End today is larger than the original Storm's End, and the original wall was not even 50 feet tall, let alone the current 700. Winterfell as well has undergone so many changes that it's like a Castle of Theseus situation. If every part of the castle has been rebuilt, is it still the original Winterfell? Well, it's in the same place at least, that matters a lot. Same hot springs, same central location. And though rivers change and forests grow or get cut down, the distance from Storm's End to Winterfell hasn't changed. The distance from Old Town to the Wall hasn't changed. Old Town is closer to the Summer Islands and the ruins of Valyria than it is to the Wall. Point being, Brandon is credited with structures that are vast distances apart. So you see the conundrum, and why the idea of multiple Brandons is a strong consideration. Because unless this Brand fellow could be in multiple places at once, or truly did live longer than a normal lifespan, or he possessed a teleporter, he couldn't have built all of these structures. Or could he? Maybe he had means beyond what modern Westerosi have, magical or otherwise. After all, our Brandon Stark has gradually been learning and occasionally showing some rather grand powers. He's surely capable of things we've yet to see or dream of. But it doesn't all have to be supernatural. Perhaps Brandon the Builder is credited with structures that he taught others to build, rather than built himself. Their names have been forgotten, but everyone knows the name Brandon the Builder, so he gets the credit. That sort of thing. We will take a closer look at the buildings and what we know of the builders, as there are some additional clues to be found. That's the kind of imagining we have to do here, rather that we get to do here. It's quite fun that the mundane and the eldritch are both at our disposal, so too is the setting here in the days not long after the supremacy of giants and children was ended by the inexorable tide of humanity. Like many ancient figures in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, not a lot is known about Brandon the Builder, causing us to want to know even more. Who was he? Where did he come from? Why was he so good at building things? Who were his friends? Who were his foes? Though his name is attached to quite a few different structures in the Reach, Stormlands, and the North, only one house bears his name, and that is of course House Stark of Winterfell. If you take the Bran Stark we know best, and go back through his family tree to his father Ned, then his father Rickard, then Edwile, Willem, Baron, then another Brandon, keep going back thousands of years, and you'll get to our subject, Brandon the Builder, the first Stark. Much has been made of how many Aegons, Darons, and, well, Freys there are, but in Westeros those names are relatively new compared to names like Garth and Brandon. In fact, there are and were so many Brandons that it seems a name may have been popular even before the first Brandon Stark. Maester Yandel suggests the roots of House Stark can potentially be traced even farther back, as some tales recount Brandon the Builder, having ancestral ties to perhaps the biggest progenitor of all, Garth Greenhand. Garth was said to be the High King of the First Men, and is celebrated as the father of many noble houses of the Reach, 
and has even been linked to noble houses outside the region. And, like Brandon, a lot of people were named after him. There's a certain intuitive sense to this. After all, the Reach is now the most fertile region of Westeros, and if that was also the case in the Age of Heroes, then it stands to reason that it's the Westerosi cradle of civilization, i.e. the region where the first men first grew and thrived. After all, when the entire continent is available for settling, why would you live in the deserts of Dorne, the intimidating Iron Isles, the soggy stormlands, or the numbing north? Well, actually, there are reasons why, and the world book seems to confirm that the first men started heading north relatively early in their migrations. Still, most of us, and probably most of them, are going to prefer the easier conditions. Imagine clans migrating across the Arm of Dorne before it was shattered, thinking to themselves, We've walked all this way to find a new home. Let's make sure it's in one of the worst places possible. Let's not forget that the Riverlands, the West, and the Vale offer some particularly choice lands too, but the Reach is the largest and closer to the Arm of Dorne. Many of those migrating across the Arm would have arrived in the Reach and quickly realized their search was over. It's different now, of course. Back then you could claim vast territory just by getting there first. That's the ancient law of finders keepers, in effect. Someone might take it from you later, but hey, that's the ancient law of might makes right. Westeros is still full of forests and mountains and places where few humans live, but all the best spots are taken now, and the law of might makes right still holds sway. What Westeros is not still full of is giants and children of the forest. One must keep them in mind when considering the claiming of a so-called empty land. As we discussed in When Giants Roamed, empty of humans does not mean empty of sentient beings. One of the things we'll explore in this episode is the relationship between the giants and children and humans, mostly humans named Brandon, and mostly as it pertains to how they may or may not have participated in some of Brandon's buildings, willingly or not. Humans drove off and killed most of the giants and children, but surely not every human shared this attitude. Look no further than Tormund for an example of someone who gets along quite well with giants in modern times. And John was doing so too there for a minute until Sir Patrick mucked it all up. A notion we'll explore in a separate episode is the idea that certain humans got particularly close to giants and or children, enough so that we suspect some characters of having shared ancestry with these non-human species. Again, look no further than Tormund for an example of uh, stories like that. Tormund Tall Talker is not the only teller of tales for us to contend with. Let's listen to another loud, large, and lusty leader. The First Robert You need to come south, Robert told him. You need a taste of summer before it flees. In High Garden there are fields of golden roses that stretch away as far as the eye can see. The fruits are so ripe they explode in your mouth. Melons, peaches, fire plums, you've, you've never tasted such sweetness. You'll see, I brought you some. Even at storm's end, with our good wind off the bay, the days are so hot you can barely move. And you ought to see the towns, Ned. Flowers everywhere. The markets bursting with food. The summer wine's so cheap and good you can get drunk just breathing the air. Everyone is fat and drunk and rich. He laughed and slapped his own ample stomach a thump. And the girls, Ned, he exclaimed, his eyes sparkling. Yes, Robert Baratheon, not the first ever to be named Robert, to be sure, but he was Robert, first of his name. Sometimes, the people with the best takes are not who we'd expect, but in modern Westerosi times, kings on the Iron Throne are among the few still able to move freely from region to region. 
making them uniquely capable of speaking firsthand the differences between the various regions, something he indirectly expresses to Ned there. Who else could demand access to the crypts immediately upon arrival at Winterfell? It's a bit of a rude thing to do, really. Ned is uncomfortable with Robert's lack of regard for the quiet of the place, and it's a rich piece of early setup that blends ancient history with recent history. More on point, though, it shows that Robert can go wherever he wants, whenever he wants, even the sacred burial place of House Stark. On the opposite end of the social hierarchy, some of the characters who are the most traveled are among the poorest, like Septon Maribald or Yorin. People like them are traveling to work, and they are aware that they represent an extra mouth to feed wherever they go, and that's a lot for the poorest. So they have to keep moving to not overburden their host. They aren't there for sightseeing, they don't get to sample the finest of each region, and they certainly don't have unlimited access to the VIP areas. Robert certainly does, though. It would be rude for Yorin to ask to see the crypts of Winterfell. It was rude for Robert, too, but... He got away with it. And that's basically the point. Even if he's not the most observant and scrupulous observer, he still has a uniquely useful perspective. Returning to the quote, perhaps there weren't as many orchards back in the times of Brandon and the Builder, and there almost certainly weren't as many towns and markets, but the vast fields of roses may have been there, as well as the real key here, the environmental weather conditions that allowed such beauty and fertility to exist in the first place and persist thereafter. The last part of the quote really says it all. Everyone is fat and drunk and rich. Robert himself fits that description quite well. Then, the actual last line, and the girls, Ned, which is relevant too. From a symbolic perspective, Robert is somewhat of a Garth Greenhand come-again figure. He's the Bran Stark to Brandon the Builder. It's a topic worth exploring in greater detail, but for now, look at all the major things Robert and Garth have in common. Robert wasn't just a king, but in effect a high king, a title not in fashion in Westeros currently, but it means someone who rules multiple kingdoms, as Garth did, or at least was said to. Both are, quote, first of their name in the royal sense, both had many children in many regions, and it wasn't a secret. We could say that the crowned stag on the Baratheon sigil is rutting in Robert's case. Technically, stags have antlers, but few beings are as horny as Robert. And that's the point, or the tip if you prefer. It's dangerous for a king in a society like this to have children out of wedlock. But he doesn't just do it anyway. He does it anyway, over and over and over and over. As for Garth Greenhand, ruling the Reach in the early days, Garth may have been drunk, fat, and rich too. That's speculation, but he certainly liked the girls. In one tradition relating to the tales of him having so many children, he has antlers like a stag. Hmm. Interestingly, Garth had many children who founded many houses, and because of this, if the legends are true, Brandon the Builder and House Stark have ancient familial ties to House Tarly, House Hightower, House Florent, House Redwine, potentially House Lannister, and many others that can be traced all the way back to the Age of Heroes. Could you imagine Bran the Builder spiring in the yard with Cousin Lan or picking grapes with Gilbert of the Vines? Or how about raising the Hightower for his Aunt Maris and Uncle Uthor? This should be the next HBO spinoff. In multiple varying traditions, his descendants went on to found many famous houses and rule various kingdoms. And that might prove to be the case with Robert as well. Gendry could get Storm's End, or Edric Storm could. There's Mia, Bella, and quite a few others who could as well, and any of the above could also marry into a title. 
My son ought to take the puffish for a sigil, if truth be told. He could put a crown on it, the way the Baratheons do their stag, mayhap that would make him happy. We should have stayed well out of all this bloody foolishness, if you ask me, but once the cow's been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up her rudder. After Lord Puffish put that crown on Renly's head, we were into the pudding up to our knees, so here we are to see things through. And what do you say to that, Sansa?' Sansa's mouth opened and closed. She felt very like a pufffish herself. The, the Tyrells can trace their descent back to Garth Greenhand, was the best she could manage at short notice. The Queen of Thorns snorted. So can the Florins, the Romans, the Ocarts, and half the other noble houses of the South. Garth liked to plant his seed in fertile ground, they say. I shouldn't wonder that more than his hands were green. Garth Greenhand is immortalized in legend and myth. The Order of the Greenhand was inspired by him, and that sounds very serious and sacred. He's remembered fondly as someone who turned women fertile by touch, but that could easily be embellishment. As Olenna suggests, the real Garth may have been more like Robert. Rather than magical womb-healing powers, he may have just leveraged his royal power to sleep around as much as he could. Even though so many of Robert's children have been killed, and that doesn't seem to have been the case with Garth, in the future it will be relatively easy to invent a blood relationship to Robert. Robert slept with my mother one night isn't something you can simply dismiss out of hand. It really does sound possible. If this were Ned Stark, you'd scoff, but it's Robert we're talking about. We've seen it mentioned through multiple POVs, and it's well attested to as a recurring thing. Notice, though, when you read The World of Ice and Fire, written by a maester in the era of Robert and his children, there's no mention of his drunkenness, his lechery. They are alluded to, if that. It is no surprise at all to find, in history, real or not, that a founding figure has his or her edges smoothed out a bit to look better for posterity. After all, the point is to use this figure to claim superiority over everyone else, and irresistible alpha male is better marketing for that than drunken sex addict. So in truth, Garth Greenhand may have deserved a nickname more like his modern descendant, Garth the Gross. It's definitely possible he was a great guy, but it's perhaps most likely that he was a mix of good and bad, more gray than green. Garth Greyhand, not to be confused with the Grey King. Perhaps he was a decent person to start off, but with the power and fame, they just went to his head. That would certainly be well in line with the recurring themes of A Song of Ice and Fire, and it would be yet another parallel to Robert. And we say person with intent there because Garth is thought of as a god in some traditions. Robert was also described multiple times as godlike. His size and strength were legendary and Ned once said his antlered helmet made him look like a horned god. We're told Garth traveled widely, spreading crops and fertility and siring children. Robert also traveled widely and sired lots of children. Not so much the literal planting of crops, though. But there may come a time when lots of houses claim descent from Robert Baratheon, as they do with Garth. If this were the case, the Robert they'd remember would be a fierce warrior. True. Jovial. True. A defeater of dragons. Mm, sort of true. And some of his other good qualities, and perhaps some invented ones. His promiscuity would be described using sanitized terms like, well, that one. Promiscuous. Same goes for his drinking. An invented legacy made to manipulate. Technically speaking, and speaking of manipulation, legacies are usually a thing for when you're dead, but all this started during his life. The manipulation was omnipresent given Robert was not truly the father of Joffrey, Tommen, and Marcella. 
The Lannisters know Robert is not a great man, but they won't say that out loud because his image is their image. Their claim to the throne comes from the claim that Robert is their father. From the reader's perspective, as well as many of the characters, the claim is certainly a lie. And the point is that this may have been true for Garth as well. Even now, the Florents are said to complain about the Tyrell claim to Highgarden, and this complaint is rooted in a superior connection to Garth Greenhand. It's not just an argument in current times. Surely some families back then fought over and invented similar claims too. Sometimes the fight would be over precedence, but sometimes it would be over legitimacy, as in the Lannister kids, as in those aren't really Robert's kids, as in your ancestral claim is made up. The Queen of Thorns is not one for nonsense. She calls it out regularly and bluntly, but... You Starks were kings once, the Aarons and the Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line, but the Tyrells were no more than stewards until Aegon the Dragon came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the Field of Fire. If truth be told, even our claim to High Garden is a bit dotty, just as those dreadful Florents are always whining. What does it matter, you ask, and of course it doesn't, except to oafs like my son. Olena would probably add that most Westerosi nobles are like her son in sharing this oafish attitude about bloodlines. But it can and does work, like it did with the Tyrells. Given that, it's not hard to see why so many houses are quick to exaggerate or invent connections. In turn, knowing that that temptation to lie exists is part of why so many claims get questioned. It's also true that, given the semi-divine status that comes with lordship, many would seek to have children with such lords, in order to have descendants with claims and status. And if there's any truth to the notion of magical genes that could be passed down, then the motivation to have children with those who carry those genes is even clearer. You might not want magical royal bloodlines for your kids, but you might if you lived in a setting like primeval Westeros. Let's take that and the knowledge we gained from discussing Robert and Garth and apply them to our subject. The First Brandon from the land of always winter, to the shores of the summer sea, the first men ruled from their ring forts. Petty kings and powerful lords proliferated, but in time some few proved to be stronger than the rest, forging the seeds of the kingdoms that are the ancestors of the seven kingdoms we know today. The names of the kings of these earliest realms are caught up in legend, and the tales that claim their individual rules lasted hundreds of years are to be understood as errors and fantasies introduced by others in later days. Names such as Brandon the Builder, Garth Greenhand, Lan the Clever, and Durin God's Grief are names to conjure with, but it is likely that their legends hold less truth than fancy. According to The World of Ice and Fire, Brandon the Builder is descended from Garth Greenhand by way of one of his sons, Brandon of the Bloody Blade. If the name Brandon of the Bloody Blade sounds familiar, that's because he was mentioned in our When Giants Roamed episode, when discussing the persecution the giants had faced once the first men began proliferating throughout Westeros. And this ancestor of Brandon the Builder was said to have... Driven giants from the Reach, and warred against the children of the forest, slaying so many at Blue Lake that it has been known as Red Lake ever since. Wow, sounds like a nice guy. Brandon of the Bloody Blade already has a foreboding ring to it like Fred of the Ferocious Fork or Dave of the Dripping Dagger. It goes further. In terms of being remembered for your deeds, this guy is famous for slaughtering the children of the forest and the expulsion of the giants from the Reach. 
Keep that in mind as we consider all the tales of both giants and children involved in the construction of certain ancient buildings, some of which are the same ones made by Brandon the Builder. If he were the son of a famous man who had committed genocide against your people, well, how did it come to pass that they worked together? But was Brandon the Builder actually a son of Brandon of the Bloody Blade? Grandson? Great, great, great grandson? It's hard to say because we are never told, and the farther back we go, the harder it is to narrow things down. 20 to 30 years is a large amount of time for people, potentially the difference between a mother and a great-grandmother. But it's not much when compared to two to 3,000 years, or 8,000. So, maybe he's not a son or grandson, but much more distant kin, or perhaps not related at all. But... The World Book does tell us that in some legends, Brandon the Builder is a contemporary of Garth Greenhand, and if there is any truth to that, this would make him not far removed from Brandon of the Bloody Blade at all, and it might suggest that Brandon the Builder is indeed either his son or his grandson. If Brandon of the Bloody Blade is from the Reach, and we have tales of Brandon the Builder being present as far south as Old Town, could this mean Brandon the Builder might have grown up in the Reach as well? We do see mention of Brandon the Builder being present in Old Town, which is on the cusp of the southwestern border of the Reach and Dorne, but it doesn't specify how old he was when this occurred. But we do have two mentions of Brandon the Builder as a young boy spending time in an area much closer to the Reach than the North in the neighboring kingdom of the Stormlands. Surely we should question the validity of the construction of Storm's End in these other places with or without Brandon the Builder, but given that we have tales of him south of the Neck assisting with the design of the High Tower, and as a young boy advising Durin in the construction of Storm's End, and knowing Brandon the Builder has ancestral ties to the Reach, a strong possibility exists that Brandon the Builder was born in the south, if not the Reach specifically, and he moved to the north later in life, possibly right after the Long Night, or maybe before, or even during it. The World Book suggests the first men came in force to Westeros and had pushed farther and farther north in the process of settling the land, and that legends recounting the migration of the first men suggest they had moved beyond the Neck and into the north very quickly in historical terms. So people were in the north as early as the Dawn Age, well before the Long Night. So even if he was from there and not from the south, Brandon was nowhere near the first of the first men in the north. He may have been the first to seize significant power, though. Since it's highly questionable, a king would be consulting a young boy for architectural advice, and legends do tend to become corrupted in the telling, and with all this talk of him being a child, Perhaps his father was alive during much of this time, and it was Brandon's father who moved the family that would eventually become House Stark. Here is another possibility given to us when Sam speaks to John. The oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros. The first men only left us runes on rocks, so everything we think we know about the Age of Heroes and the Dawn Age and the Long Night comes from accounts set down by Septons thousands of years later. There are archmaesters of the Citadel who question all of it. Those old histories are full of kings who reigned for hundreds of years, and knights riding around a thousand years before there were knights. You know the tales. Brand and the Builder, Simeon Star-Eyes, Knight's King. Knights riding around before the existence of knights is a good example of a fabrication, but the Citadel also thinks giants and the children are extinct, so they aren't exactly authority figures on that subtopic. 
It's definitely possible that people could live longer lifespans, magically or otherwise, back then. The children have lifespans longer than humans, and given that Brynden Rivers is 125 and still alive, though part tree, still with that in mind, we don't think it's a stretch to imagine 150 or even 200 years, if not more. An extended lifespan would certainly explain a lot of the stories about Brandon. Take a person who lived for a few hundred years, and all of a sudden, it doesn't sound impossible that they built so many castles in so many places. Still, regardless of whether Brandon the Builder is more than one person, or a very long-lived one, or both, there have definitely been a lot more Brandons since then, especially in the house he founded. All Brandons are a reminder of Brandon the Builder. The First Stark A lot of early First Men names have a straightforward, utilitarian-style name that gives an idea of what they are, or what they have, or what they're famous for. Fisher, Strong, Blackwood, Marsh, Hightower. It's not so clear what Stark means, though. Perhaps he gave himself the name, though it could have been a nickname given to him by others, something like that. All Starks claim descent from Brandon the Builder, as he's credited with founding the house, which means he probably wasn't born with the name Stark. Or like the Lannister claim to the throne through Robert, it might all be fabricated. The lie accepted so long ago that the time to challenge it has long since passed. Descent from Garth was used by the Monarchs of the Reach to justify quite a few land grabs over the ensuing centuries, and Garth wasn't the only famous person people claimed descent from. He was just the most promiscuous. Likewise, much of this applies to these famous Brandons, whether their blades are bloody or whether they're more interested in buildings. There will be claims of ancestry. It may be that some guy named Brandon killed a bunch of other people and forcibly married a surviving daughter, then made up a story to cover up what really happened. That could be how House Stark began, Brandon marrying the daughter of an existing local chief, perhaps through arrangement, or even through the old bride-stealing practice that the free folk still use. Either way, we can assume there was the threat of force behind much of this. Brandon was not some single solitary figure striding about the north alone doing great deeds. He had followers, probably a retinue, and probably family from before the name Stark was taken. Because let's not forget that ultimately claims matter very little without swords to back them up. After that, though, you need a place to keep those swords, and those who wield them, and their families and supplies and such. A castle. What about the old saying, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell? A clever way to get the common people to support House Stark? Or a sincere statement on the value of leadership and a symbol to rally behind if the worst comes? Winter is coming is their house words, though it's a sentiment the ancients surely shared to some degree. It's likely, though, that this came along in a later era as an official motto, as house words are more of an Andal tradition. But it could certainly date all the way back to Brandon the Builder. It fits with the vision of the character we're presented with, someone who took power and forged a dynasty, but always with an eye to protecting the realm. We're looking at this from a great distance, but it seems there was a large amount to give to back up this take. A big part of why Winterfell has been supreme in the North for so long is the support of the common folk, and there's a strong chance this started with Brandon the Builder. The tradition of crypt burials we've referenced at the start of this episode likely began with him as well, as well as the laying of iron swords across the laps of the stone statues. What of the direwolves? Did Brandon himself have a direwolf? Was he a skin changer? Certainly, later Starks have been, such as the current Brandon and his siblings. There probably were more skin changers back then, not fewer though, don't you think? 
In fact, there was a Stark king who took a skin changer king's daughter to wife, and it probably wasn't some great scandal. The name House Stark has power, but the true tangible power is Winterfell itself. Because he is credited with the wall and other structures, his name may have lived on even without Winterfell, but House Stark likely would not have. It is the strongest castle, and it lies in a relatively central location. A claim to be part of the family is great, but a claim to own Winterfell is vastly greater. Just as it is in modern times, the cycle of elder children inheriting, usually sons, existed. Those homes and farms and castles would pass down to successive generations, and many lands would be further developed, homes made larger, castles expanded. We can surmise with confidence that younger children, also as it is in modern times, would either find employment or opportunity with their elder siblings or by seeking their fortunes out in the world. Some things never change, as they say. Some people just love challenge, pushing themselves, starting something new. There's the lure of the untamed. And in the age of heroes, there was a lot of untamed. So when we posed the question earlier, why would someone go live in the frigid north when they could live in the reach? We said there were exceptions. But beyond those exceptions, the bigger choice facing men like Brandon the Builder might be something more along the lines of serve in the south or rule in the north. Let's not assume that Brandon the Builder himself was first born. Ned's older brother Brandon was first born, but Ned's own son Bran wasn't. For example, when it comes to the concept of second sons, in this context, meaning any child who doesn't inherit, in this ancient era, there were a lot more opportunities to start your own house, and a lot fewer opportunities to work for someone else. There weren't really sellsword companies, like the second sons, that we know of. The main thing you need to start a house is land, and as we've said a few times, there was more land for the taking in this era. Given the lack of established houses back then, it was also easier to wipe a family completely out. Between that and the lack of records, there was just a lot less continuity in general for us to work with. That makes the Age of Heroes both harder to understand and even more compelling at the same time. The First King of Winter Her son's crown was fresh from the forge, and it seemed to Catelyn Stark that the weight of it pressed heavy on Rob's head. The ancient crown of the kings of winter had been lost three centuries ago, yielded up to Aegon the Conqueror when Torrin Stark knelt in submission. What Aegon had done with it, no man could say. Lord Hostess Smith had done his work well, and Rob's crown looked much as the other was said to have looked, in the tales told of the Stark kings of old. An open circlet of hammered bronze, incised with the runes of the first men, surmounted by nine black iron spikes, wrought in the shape of longswords. Of gold and silver and gemstones, it had none. Bronze and iron were the metals of winter, dark and strong, to fight against the cold. Was the crown given up to Aegon the Conqueror truly the same crown created by Brandon the Builder all those years ago? That would be quite amazing, but it's not out of the question. Regardless, apparently this has been the style since his days, and though the crown does not rest easy, it is fitting. Dark and strong to fight the cold, it says, and that goes along well with Brandon's apparent style of rule via a combination of taking the lead against the inevitable return of winter and the others with regular old political and military might. It sounds as if some of the early expansion in the Reach happened via the process of taking lands that once belonged to the children and the giants, which gradually shifted into first men taking it from other first men as the children and giants dwindled in population. With each successive generation, there would be fewer giants and children, and more humans, 
and thus more places where humans lived. More farms, more homes, more castles, more legal claims, and more falsified legal claims. We'd guess it was quite similar in the north. Winterfell was a powerful location, and since Brandon the Builder is credited with building the wall, clearly he presents the image of a monarch that takes the whole protecting the realm part seriously. In turn, that gave him support from other lords, which in turn enabled further subjugation of the rest of the north. Another compelling aspect of this era was the abundance of kingdoms. Brandon the Builder was the first to be crowned at Winterfell, but his writ did not extend throughout the entire north, probably not even close. Even if he was possessed of a very long life, we are told the unification of the north took eons. The Boltons, for example, did not submit until about a thousand years before Song of Ice and Fire, and Brandon the Builder would have lived something like 7,000 years before that. In line with the phrase winter is coming, this perhaps would have been a goal of the ancient Starks, uniting the north into one kingdom so as to better prepare for the next time the others come. If they thought the others were defeated for good and all, why bother with the wall? Why keep up the night's watch? So clearly the concern still existed and may have been a driving force. It resembled theories ranging from Aegon the Conqueror to Azor Ahai, themes we've discussed with Jon Snow and Daenerys Targaryen. The consistent notion that unity, either through accord or conquest, is necessary to fight a greater threat. If Westeros, or the North, is in chaos and civil war, the others will have an easy time of it, won't they? That begs the question we've alluded to a bit earlier. Did Brandon the Builder himself fight against the others during the Long Night? Or was he too young during that time? Or perhaps not even born yet? He's a man that supported the Night's Watch in the ultimate way by building the wall, so it certainly stands to reason he would aid them and humanity in general if he was able. Seeing the others firsthand, living through the Long Night, would explain a lot. Not hard to imagine him and many others being highly motivated to prepare for the inevitable next Long Night. What other houses existed in this era then? Just because he was the first king of winter doesn't mean he was the first man to crown himself in the north. And, even if he was, others rose regardless. Even without a clear picture of the ancient north, some things can be safely assumed anyway. One of the issues with any kingdom, but especially newly formed kingdoms, is the establishment of borders. Where exactly one kingdom begins and another ends is often the kind of dispute that leads to war. It's possible this state of affairs was worse in the early days, as there were fewer traditions and established borders to refer to. We mentioned traditions because culture clashes are often cited as a reason to go to war. The North doesn't appear super diverse these days, but the Free Folk do, and we get the impression that the Free Folk are a better representation of the ancient North than the North as seen south of the Wall. I'd say most of the time people should live and let live when it comes to cultural traditions, but there are exceptions. The enmity between the Starks and Boltons went back to the Long Night itself, it is claimed. The wars between those two ancient houses were legion, and not all ended in victory for House Stark. King Royce Bolton, second of his name, is said to have taken and burned Winterfell itself. His namesake and descendant Royce the Fourth, remembered by history as Royce Redarm, for his habit of plunging his arm into the bellies of captive foes to pull out their entrails with his bare hand, did the same three centuries later. Other Red Kings were reputed to wear cloaks made from the skins of Stark princes they had captured and flayed. If the enmity truly went back to the Long Night itself, then Brandon the Builder would have been familiar with it. He would have perhaps warred with the Boltons directly, as his descendants no doubt did. Mostly, though, we'd suspect the early enemies would be the closest houses. 
like House Blackwood, who were apparently ejected from the North at some point, perhaps because they were too big a rival for the Crown of the North. But we have no idea when this enmity came to a head. For all we know, the Blackwoods and Starks were allies early on, after the Long Night, and the problems came later. Even houses who were now staunch allies and neighbors like House Sirwin may have begun as enemies before bending the knee to Winterfell. But Brandon the Builder may have had other lords willing to follow him right away. In fact, that seems likely. Even in those truly ancient times, it would be difficult to crown yourself without some powerful allies. Which begs an unanswerable question. Who was Brandon's queen? Perhaps a Bolton or even a lady of the south? Roos seems to indicate Starks and Boltons have never married, but it's not entirely clear and wouldn't necessarily be known 8,000 years later. One thing I doubt is that Brandon and his queen were both from outside the north. We find it a bit unlikely that the first king and queen of winter were both from elsewhere. Folks can accept a foreign monarch if their children will be locals, but when both monarchs are from elsewhere, well, that's just a concern because it's difficult to effectively rule a place when you lack knowledge of that place. That is the rub with some of these truly ancient figures, as well as it is in the real world. Their fame carries them forward through the eons of memory, and that process tends to strip away personal connections. His wife or son or daughter or aunt or uncle may have been critically important to the formation of House Stark and or the building of Winterfell. Brandon's queen may have come from a family that lived in the north since before the Long Night. In the real world, 8,000 years ago, most of the people who were kings and queens are unknown. Not a lot of writing back then. When they are known, it's usually because of a tomb or something like that. As we said at the start of this episode, the cave-in that occurred in Winterfell's crypts prevents us from knowing if Brandon the Builder's tomb is down there. Osha smiled. Winter's got no king. If you'd seen it, you'd know that, summer boy. There were kings in the north for thousands of years, Maester Lewin said, lifting the torch high so the light shone on the stone faces. Some were hairy and bearded, shaggy men, fierce as the wolves that crouched by their feet. Others were shaved clean, their features gaunt and sharp-edged as the iron longswords across their laps. Hard men for a hard time. Come. He strode briskly down the vault, past the procession of stone pillars and the endless carved figures. The way the Stark crypts are as we see them, the lord or king is given a statue and their family is buried behind them in tombs without statues. There are exceptions, of course, like Ned having statues made for Brandon and Lyanna. So, if we could see the original statue of Brandon, we could see the tombs buried behind him, and those tombs would have runes. Of course, he may have had more than one queen, especially if he lived a hugely long lifespan and his first queen was a person with a normal lifespan. Marrying into a family with northern roots would lend a certain bit of legitimacy. Continuing this line of thought, perhaps an ancestor or in-law could have been the source for his skills at building, meaning he could have been taught by someone and that someone could have been an in-law. A fairly straightforward way to explain why he seemed to be so far ahead of the curve of Westerosi architecture would be that he came from Essos, where technology was farther ahead. This would stand against the claim that he was a descendant of Garth Greenhand by Brandon the Bloody Blade, but that's not exactly an established fact, just a theory. Since there is evidence of giants helping build castles and the wall in Westeros, we should consider these ideas together. Were giants part of any construction projects in Essos? Giants themselves could be considered a technological advancement, though I doubt they'd do any design work. 
Even now, there are giants in Essos, while they are believed extinct in Westeros. We know that to be a false belief, but not far off given the grim outlook for giants in the North now. In the Age of Heroes, however, they were likely fairly plentiful still, given that giants are part of so many tales. Song and story tell us that the Starks of Winterfell have ruled large portions of the lands beyond the Neck for 8,000 years, styling themselves the Kings of Winter, the more ancient usage, and in more recent centuries, the Kings in the North. Their rule was not an uncontested one. Many were the wars in which the Starks expanded their rule or were forced to win back lands that rebels had carved away. The Kings of Winter were hard men in hard times. Ancient ballads among the oldest to be found in the archives of the citadel of Old Town, tell of how one king of winter drove the giants from the north. That doesn't sound like Brandon the Builder, since he is more likely to have worked with giants or forced them to work with him, though perhaps he drove them away when he was finished with them. But of all the tales of Brandon the Builder, as great as they are, there are no martial feats. There aren't stories of him going to war or fighting, even in the long night. It seems that though his impact was powerful and long-lasting, it wasn't on the battlefield. So perhaps this was another King of Winter, though it would be a descendant of Brandon the Builder either way. It could be instead that giants were driven out more gradually. One thought I prefer is that there was a King of Winter who made a particular point to target giants. Perhaps his father or mother or other kin had been slain by one. Surely more than a few Starks have been killed by giants over the years, the most recent being Lord Walton Stark, son of Brandon the Boastful about 250 years ago. At some point in the ancient past, there would have been, as there is for everything, a first time. Whether connected to this particular King of Winter or not, the first Stark slain by a giant would have very likely provoked a reaction, and prior to the North being largely tamed and settled by humanity, there would have been a lot of giants for the wolves to beard in their cavernous homes. This episode has a companion called The Buildings of Brandon, which details, well, the buildings Brandon is associated with in the process of constructing these ancient edifices, whether natural or supernatural. This includes Winterfell, the Wall, Storm's End, the High Tower, and other locations, plus discussion of the magic of the children of the forest in the Old Gods and what role that played. We'll also go deeper with these questions about the giants, such as whether or not they were forced into helping. Included are recent anecdotes with One One and even Sandor Clegane. To get more episodes like this and to support the creation of more episodes like this, join us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash historyofwesteros. This episode is brought to you by patrons such as our Blood Riders, Kohol Koei, called Sunpiercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, Kokavo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna, and screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt, wielder of a Valyrian steel quill, slayer of unoriginal screenplays. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall, and a laurel of glory in the name of love to Bud of House Beresford, Knight of Tolkien and Arbiter of Scotch from Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson. Our northern champions include J. Wilson Winter's King, Winter's King Lord of the First Men, Lady R. Ardross, Mother of Wolves, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Claymore Manticore, Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Ice Eyes, the Bastard of the Last River. Lord Darren of House Rambler, the last hunt is ceaseless. Lady Bobby of House Mitchell. Gandalf the White, Lord of House Seamorn. Shari of Skane, last of the long night archaeologists and wielder of untested hypothesis, a Valyrian steel trowel with a dragonbone handle. 
Lady Nicole of House Anime. The small can be powerful. Captain of Sweet Camellia. Adelard the Wanderer. Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Frostfall. And the Bitter Steel. The Last Hero. How the long night came to an end is a matter of legend, as all such matters of the distant past have become. In the north, they tell of a last hero who sought out the intercession of the children of the forest, his companions abandoning him or dying one by one as they faced ravenous giants, cold servants, and the others themselves. Alone, he finally reached the children, despite the efforts of the White Walkers, and all the tales agree this was a turning point. Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the battle for the dawn, the last battle, that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. Now, six thousand years later, or eight thousand, as true history puts forward, the wall made to defend the realms of men is still manned by the sworn brothers of the Night's Watch, and neither the others nor the children have been seen in many centuries. While placing the various figures and events of the Age of Heroes into a timeline is impossible, we can use context to all but rule out that certain characters didn't live at the same time. For example, even if Brandon lived for 200 years, he wouldn't have been King of Winter at the time of Night's King, the 13th Lord Commander. It's a lot, but we can imagine Brandon the Builder outliving 12 Lord Commanders, but Night's King was brought down by King Brandon the Breaker, a rather strong suggestion that Brandon the Builder had passed on. Since not only was the Breaker a descendant of the Builder, but Night's King was supposedly a Stark too, meaning he was also a descendant of the Builder. Though it's also possible that Brandon the Builder and Brandon the Breaker are the same person. Just as we suppose that Brandon the Builder might be multiple Brandons, we shouldn't dismiss the reverse, that one Brandon had multiple nicknames, making him appear as multiple figures in the histories. As well, the implication in that quote is that the Night's Watch was formed during the Long Night, which makes sense. It might be odd for the Night's Watch to have existed before the Long Night, after all. Perhaps not, though, as humanity could have been forewarned, as they are through Bran Stark and the Night's Watch now. Either way, it's plausible Brandon the Builder lived during the Long Night. That the Wall was built after the Long Night seems to be one of the details we can be most certain of. So, if Brandon the Builder did indeed build the Wall, then he probably lived through it, or was born just after it. More likely lived through it, since Winterfell was probably built prior to the Long Night. If so, that would place House Stark's founding quite a bit later than has been said, as the Long Night was perhaps 4,000 years into the Age of Heroes. It's not really a big deal if House Stark is, say, 6,000 years old instead of 8,000, but that might indeed be the case. If Brandon the Builder was alive during the Long Night, then he was very likely a contemporary of the Last Hero, and there's a small chance that he was the Last Hero. Either way, the connection between these two is a great place for us to turn our attention, so let's compare their stories. The Last Hero sought the children out and succeeded, which was crucial to defeating the others. But it was extremely difficult for him, with friends dying and other forms of suffering. Note the difference here for Brandon the Builder. Maester Childer's Winter's Kings, or the legends and lineages of the Starks of Winterfell, contains a part of a ballad alleged to tell of the time Brandon the Builder sought the aid of the children while raising the wall. He was taken to a secret place to meet with them, but could not at first understand their speech, which was described as sounding like the song of stones in a brook, or the wind through leaves, or the rain upon the water. The manner in which Brandon learned to comprehend the speech of the children is a tale in itself, and not worth repeating here. 
but it seems clear that their speech originated, or drew inspiration from, the sounds they heard every day. So he was taken there. No suffering implied in the search like there was for the last hero. There are other possibilities, but perhaps the last hero was the one who arranged the meeting to introduce Brandon the Builder to those he labored to find. Or they were the same person. Let's go a bit farther with this and ask a question. How would one come to understand speech that is described as the song of stones in a brook, or the wind through leaves, or the rain upon water? It's a good question, and one that I've asked myself. The children of the forest probably didn't hand him a copy of The True Tongue for Dummies, and he didn't discover the Rosetta Stone for wind, air, and water sounds, and there was no Duolingo. When it comes to understanding, quote, the song of stones in a brook or the wind through leaves or the rain upon the water, the answer is you can't. You can't learn to understand that, well, at least not in the conventional sense. But in Brand 3 of A Dance with Dragons, we see a hint of how one might be able to understand the true tongue. Sometimes the sound of song would drift up from some place far below. The children of the forest, old Nan would have called the singers, but those who sing the song of earth was their own name for themselves, in the true tongue that no human man could speak. The ravens could speak it, though. Their small black eyes were full of secrets, and they would caw at him and peck his skin when they heard the songs. According to Bran, who is on his way to becoming a subject matter expert on the old gods, he tells us that no human can understand the true tongue, but he does add that ravens can, and within a few paragraphs, Bran's skin changes a raven for the first time. It's almost straightforward. He can't understand their speech, but once inside the skin of a raven, he should be able to. The same method could explain it for Bran and the Builder, and or the last hero. Their green seer talents could have been very raw until they encountered the children and were mentored by existing green seers and singers, as we see with Bran. It might go beyond this, however. Later on in Brand 3, he is given werewood paste to awaken his gifts and for the first time slips his skin to look through the eyes of the werewood. And when he does, he is able to see his father before the heart tree and whispers, Winterfell. His father looks up, turning, and asks, Who's there? The next thing Bran knows, he is back in the cave telling Bloodraven what he saw and states that his father had, quote, heard him. In response, Bloodraven says, he heard a whisper on the wind, a rustling among the leaves. You could not speak to him. Try as you might. So when Bran tries to speak to his father, what Eddard heard was only a whisper on the wind, a rustling of the leaves. And when Bran falls asleep later on in the same chapter, he finds his father before the heart tree once more, and Bran's voice was again unable to reach his father. It was again described as a whisper in the wind and... A rustle in the leaves. This aligns pretty well with the way Osha claims the old gods communicate. Tell me what you meant about hearing the gods. Osha studied him. You asked them, and they're answering. Open your ears, listen. You'll hear. Bran listened. It's only the wind, he said after a moment, uncertain. The leaves are rustling. Who do you think sends the wind, if not the gods? They see you, boy. They hear you talking. That rustling? That's them talking back. 
And when we compare this to the passage where Brandon the Builder learned to understand the speech of the children, which was said to sound like, among other things, the wind through leaves, it appears we have a match again. So there's a pretty good chance Brandon the Builder came to learn the speech of the true tongue the same way Brandon in our present storyline has come to speak it. Meaning, Brandon the Builder could have learned the same magic when he sought out the help of the children that Bran is presently learning after he sought out the help of the children. This makes a lot of sense. From what we have seen so far, the most common magic used by the children of the forest is green sight and skin changing. Additionally, the only magics we know to be shared or taught to humans are again green sight and skin changing. One thing specifically about the brand in our present storyline that fans caught onto pretty quickly was the significance of his name. To review, there was a king and hero named Bran the Blessed in Welsh mythology, whose totem was a raven, and in Welsh, the word Bran is even translated to mean raven. So in regard to the significance within the story, it's a fitting name to give to a character who has a connection to the old gods and is learning to become a green seer, and this is likely why Bran's mentor, Brendan Rivers, better known as Blood Raven, was given a variant of the name Brandon as well. And if this is the case, then it's quite possible Martin had this deeper meaning in mind for the progenitor of House Stark as well. In addition to universal symbolism, in A Song of Ice and Fire, ravens can both speak and understand the various languages. They're the ideal conduit, and so are the brands, though not necessarily the Brandins. And out of all the many Brandons we've gone over, only Brandon the Builder and our Brandon are ever called Bran. A sneaky detail. There's no reference then to other Brandons having this raven symbol added to them, indicating their lack of green seer talents. Brendan Rivers give us another example of one who is associated with ravens and has green seer talents. And if Brandon the Builder came to learn the magic from the children in the same way that Bran is presently, then when looking at this in the context of how the wall was built, we may have our answer. As to the question of whether Brandon the Builder and the last hero are separate figures, here's something else to consider that was said about him. One by one, his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog. And his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. Try not to be too distracted by the ice spiders big as hounds. It's a big ask, I know, but try your best. Compare that legend about the last hero's sword to the mention of same in this conversation between Sam and John. I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly they could not stand against it. Dragon steel? John frowned. Valyrian steel? That was my first thought as well. It's also our thought. A strong possibility that John and Sam are right, or that dragon steel is something very similar to Valyrian steel. But here's the problem. Are we to believe that the last hero's Valyrian steel blade, quote, froze so hard the blade snapped? I don't think so. Nah. Perhaps these are different swords. The last hero's sword broke and then later acquired dragon steel. But where would they acquire dragon steel, though? The children don't even work with iron, let alone steel, let alone magical steel, so he's pretty unlikely to get dragon steel from the children. Or is he? Given the revelation that Dark Sister went with Bloodraven to the wall, Bran himself could acquire Valyrian steel, even if he doesn't personally wield it. 
So while they surely didn't make their own fancy swords, you never know what they've collected down there in those caves over the eons. If House Dane's greatsword Dawn is as ancient as they say, the technology and or magic did exist back then. It's perhaps easy to guess that, given the association to House Stark, the last hero wielded the original Stark sword, Ice. But we must not forget that the Valyrian steel blade Ice, sundered by House Lannister into Widow's Whale and Heartsbane, was only 400 or so centuries old. The original ice was apparently normal steel, and as well as the last hero, it may have been held by Brandon the Builder. If it was a great sword like Valyrian steel ice, it was likely ceremonial, unless there was a Brandon the Huge or something. Bran himself wielding a great sword is out of the question, at least personally. But could he wield one through his gentle giant? Hodor isn't a Brandon, but he is huge. As we wondered with Bran the Builder, we know for sure Bran in our present timeline is using a giant to accomplish things that he is physically unable to do. After Bran's fall and subsequent paralysis, we often see Bran being carried by Hodor or riding on his back or Bran giving him simple commands. But by the time a storm of swords rolls around, Bran begins skin changing into Hodor and in dance, Martin begins to reveal the ethical and moral issues surrounding skin changing and invading the mind of another person. In the Varamyr prologue, we learn there is an unwritten code skin changers should follow. One should never eat of human meat or mate as wolf with wolf, but above all, seizing the body of another man is considered the worst abomination. Yet despite being given this information, what is being portrayed in the Vermeer prologue is essentially a commentary of how this magic can corrupt and be misused, culminating in his attempt to invade and take over the mind of Thistle. Later on in A Dance with Dragons, we see the ethics of this addressed again with Bran, where he is once again skin-changing into his giant companion. The big stable boy no longer fought him as he had the first time, back in the lake tower during the storm, like a dog who has had all the fight whipped out of him. Hodor would curl up and hide whenever Bran reached out for him. His hiding place was somewhere deep within him, a pit where not even Bran could touch him. No one wants to hurt you, Hodor, he said silently, to the child man whose flesh he'd taken. I just want to be strong again for a while. I'll give it back, the way I always do. Another hint can be found in John 10 of A Storm of Swords, where John goes beyond the wall to parlay with Mance in the aftermath of the wildling attack on the wall, and on his way, he surveys the damage taken by the other side. There were other corpses, too, strewn amidst broken barrels, hardened pitch, and patches of burnt grass, all shadowed by the wall. John had no wish to linger here. He started walking toward the wildling camp, past the body of a dead giant whose head had been crushed by a stone. A raven was pulling out bits of brain from the giant's shattered skull. It looked up as he walked by. Snow! It screamed at him. Snow! Snow! Then it opened its wings and flew away. The imagery here is powerful because we have the wall, a giant, and a raven all in the same scene. The dead giant laying in the shadow of the wall is pretty self-explanatory from a symbolic standpoint, and ravens are often seen as a symbol of the magic of the old gods and the children of the forest, but as we have mentioned previously, the word Bran also means raven, so symbolically speaking, a raven could also be used as a stand-in for him as well. So in this passage, we have a raven, which could be Bran, feasting upon the mind of a giant shattered by the wall. Though there are elements to Brandon's story, it really does sound more like John is the last hero. 
The ice and fire elements combine together in one figure just sound like John. As John and Bran are related, they may work together, or at least separately towards the same goal, just as the last hero and Bran and the Builder did. Bran is the one to awaken John's powers in the Clash of Kings, giving him his first weirwood vision, which would parallel our speculation that the way Brandon learned the true tongue was via the last hero. Now, the subject of parallels brings us back to the most important parallel of all. The last Brandon. A.K.A. the current Bran Stark, the one we know the most about, and what a helpful boy he is. As you may have noticed, something our author likes to use in his bag of tricks are historic character parallels. There's been a lot in this episode already. The A Song of Ice and Fire series is full of them, and it's something that you are probably well aware of, especially if you follow the History of Westeros Twitter account, or if you've caught our Parallel Lives livestream. What many have noticed is that George has a tendency to build a particular character blueprint, or model in a sense, and he then gives present and historical figures certain qualities or life events that shape or define their character. And in identifying and comparing these parallels and similarities, we are better able to understand their journey and purpose within the story. Interestingly, throughout the series, our author has sent subtle clues to connect the character of Bran in our present timeline and the original Brandon from ages past. Maybe some of them aren't so subtle. There are enough similarities and ways that our author has connected these two characters that it has even given way to some readers speculating that the Brandon in our present timeline might even be the Brandon the Builder from ages past, and that he time-traveled to the original Long Night. But as much as everyone loves a good time-traveling Bran, or a Bran is all the Brandon's theory, we don't think it's quite so literal. It's the result of our author using allegory and literary tools so that aspects of one character can inform us symbolically about the nature and archetype of the other. When we look at our present timeline Bran, there may be instances when we are being informed about the nature and character of the original Brandon, and vice versa. We might find ourselves seeing Bran Stark do something that causes us to think of Bran and the Builder, or hear news stories of Bran and the Builder's legend that seem to be speaking of current Bran. The sheer mystery behind these ancient figures is part of why we look to current characters for parallels, because it's a well-established aspect of George R. R. Martin's writings, and it pays to pay attention to his world-building, because it often tells us so much about the story, as well as being fascinating on its own. So, as Robert is useful to understanding Garth, Bran Stark is a great lens for viewing Bran and the Builder. Much better than Robert, really, because Bran is a POV, the first POV, not counting the prologue. Look how well his early chapters include this aspect of the story without direct focus. After the execution of a man who fled his duty on the wall, a structure said to have been built by his namesake, Bran goes exploring the older portions of Winterfell, a structure also said to have been built by his namesake. Here he is from a high vantage point in his element. He liked the way it looked. Spread out beneath him, only birds wheeling over his head, while all the life of the castle went on below. Bran could perch for hours among the shapeless, rain-worn gargoyles that brooded over the first keep, watching it all. The men drilling with wood and steel in the yard, the cooks tending their vegetables in the glass garden, restless dogs running back and forth in the kennels, the silence of the god's wood, the girls gossiping beside the washing well. It made him feel like he was lord of the castle, in a way even Rob would never know. It taught him Winterfell's secrets, too. The builders had not even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. 
Bran knew about that, and he knew you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, and then come out on ground level at the north gate, with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. Even Maester Lewin didn't know that. Bran was convinced. It's not just that Bran the child knows something that Lewin the adult doesn't know. It's a clue that the Maester's learned rational mind is incapable of properly perceiving the supernatural. The slow push of science winning out over mystery and magic is reversed here. As the Red Comet heralds, Westeros has entered a new age of wonder, perhaps a new age of heroes. The Maester's way of thinking, familiar to us, is no longer correct. Beyond symbolism, there's a logistical framework here to this. The Maester and members of Bran's family have had more time to learn about Winterfell, given they've been living so many more years than he has. But they clearly don't have the same affinity for it that he does. He's drawn to Winterfell in a way no other character is. Exploring alone is a regular thing for him. Bran may not be the Stark who carries the line forward, but he bonds with their shared history in a way no one else does, setting up his connection to the Weirwoods, which holds a much vaster shared history. It comes off as simple and childlike. He genuinely likes the castle. He thinks about how the crows know him due to his frequent visits, sometimes with corn. The crows don't know his father, his mother, his brothers, or his sisters, though they may have known other Brandon Stark from ages past. Most of what we're discussing in this section is from the first few chapters of the series, but much later we learn that the birds are more than they seem, that they have long past singers in them. Long dead, yet a part of her remains, just as a part of you would remain in summer if your boy's flesh were to die upon the morrow, a shadow on the soul. She will not harm you. Do all the birds have singers in them? All, Lord Brynden said. It was the singers who taught the first men to send messages by raven. But in those days the birds would speak the words. The trees remember, but men forget. And so now they write the messages on parchment and tie them round the feet of birds who have never shared their skin. On one hand, it's an amazing thing that people forgot such an amazing thing like talking birds delivering messages. On the other hand, it's so amazing that it's pretty hard to believe without proof. Bran thinks of Rob laughing about it. And the only proof is in the Weirwood Network. This is a tantalizing reminder that even Garth Greenhand and the original Brandon, or Brandons, are potentially visible to us, along with all sorts of other mysteries, through Bran's POV. This kid has access to pretty much literally everything that's ever happened. It's just a matter of what George is going to show us. What he chooses to show us tells us a lot in and of itself, so we look to what we've been shown so far. Almost right away, the Starks of Winterfell are established as by far the most prominent family in the North, and the crypts and other details make it clear that it's been this way for a huge length of time. From a meta level, even though A Song of Ice and Fire has expanded quite a bit since its original conception... This has always been a part of the initial ideas that George has put forth. Bran was the first POV George imagined, even. This is where it all began. A boy from another family would not have access to wander Winterfell like Bran did. Only a Stark could do that. And this has been the case for a very long time. The name Stark carries enormous weight all over the North. Any descendant of Garth Greenhand would have a claim to fame back in ancient times, and most likely had connections to wealth and power. 
if not direct access. For the most part, the people building castles are going to be the ones who fall into this elite level of wealth. And their children are the ones who roam the halls freely. Robert, as king and friend of Ned, can go down to the crypts where a few others are allowed. Barbary Dustin wants to look at it on the down low, but we're also told that the Stark kids played down there a few times. Just as Brandon the Builder went to a hidden place and learned to communicate with the children regarding the wall and other things, Bran did essentially the same. Those secrets, remembered for so long, are passed to him. From Brynden to Brandon. From Brandon to Bran. Brandon the Builder was probably a green seer and a skin changer, as Bran is, perhaps of unusually great strength like Bran is. Brandon the Builder may have used his powers to control giants. Bran has controlled the gentle giant Hodor. We even have Ned telling Arya that Bran could be like Brandon the Builder when he grows older. Old Nan tells Bran his favorite story was how Bran the Builder built the wall, which isn't actually his favorite, and it must have been the favorite of another Brandon. Bran goes on to remember his mother once telling him that Old Nan had lived so long, all the Brandons became one person in her head. It seems to us that so many of the tales about Brandon the Builder refer to him as a boy in order to further cement this parallel. With Bran Stark giving off so many connections to his ancient namesake, it's hard not to fill in the blanks of Brandon the Builder's life using some of the same broad strokes. Even the youthful aspect is something that they have in common, at least in some portions of the legend. Brandon the Builder may have been the first Stark buried in the crypts of Winterfell, and Bran Stark emerged from them, most of the world including his own family believing him dead. Bran's mother returned from the dead literally, while Bran did so symbolically, but it hits just as hard. The construction of Winterfell, and especially the Wall, show that Brandon the Builder was concerned with the return of the others, of a second long night, and that foresight seems to have been well-placed. Brandon the Builder's legend is wrapped up in House Stark's identity in a way unlike any other house. Winter is coming is not a boast, like so many other house words. It's not even really about the Stark family, except to describe perhaps their number one goal, one that humankind may have forgotten. But the North remembers. The trees remember. All of these connections and parallels across the eons, and surely there are more to come. One established theory is this. Given that the first non-prologue POV was Bran, there's a good chance he'll be our last non-epilogue character as well. In honor of that idea, that expectation, let's also finish how we started. I wore many names when I was quick, but even I once had a mother, and the name she gave me at her breast was Brynden. I have an uncle, Brynden, Bran said. He's my mother's uncle, really. Brynden Blackfish, he's called. Your uncle may have been named after me. Some are, still. Not so many as before. Men forget. Only the trees remember. If Bran were the snotty, sarcastic type, he would say, Well, they did forget my name. On the other hand, Brynden and Brandon are pretty damn close, and likely one is a variant of the other. We're gonna guess Brandon is the older name, which means that actually Bloodraven, while Blackfish probably was named for you, you're named for all those Brandons. George didn't give the mentor and student, both part of the Green Seer Continuum, such similar names by accident. Nor did he make Brandon the most common Stark name, if not the most common name in the series, period, by accident. But most common is misleading, since only a few of the many Brandons aren't Starks. 
we mentioned Brandon the Good and Brandon the Bad and, of course, Brandon of the Bloody Blade. But there's also Brandon the Breaker, Brandon the Shipwright, Brandon the Burner, Brandon Ice Eyes, Brandon the Daughterless, Brandon the Boisterous, and Brandon the Boastful, and surely other unnamed Brandons as well. As we've seen in this episode, though, out of all of them, Bran the Builder's closest analog is Bran the POV character. And who knows what history will call him. We can be pretty sure that it won't be Bran the POV character, but given everything, he'll probably be among the Brandons with nicknames rather than one of the ones without. He thinks of himself as Bran the Broken, Bran the Boy, and even Bran the Beastling. But we much prefer Bran the Rebuilder, and until something else is established, that's what we'll go with. Just as the early, wild, oft-freezing and untamed North was lacking in hospitable places, a state of affairs that Bran the Builder set out to remedy, after the others, the long night, the starvation and depredation, the war in all corners of the realm, the disease and wildfire and dragons and whatever else, Westeros will be in need of serious rebuilding. And as Bran the Builder may have come from the line of Garth Greenhand, the figure most associated with humankind's struggle to carve out home and hearth amidst the onslaught of nature. The true purpose of the Green Man and the Isle of Faces has yet to be revealed, but it's difficult to imagine that Bran won't be intertwined, if not deeply intertwined. Besides that, who knows where Bran's dreams and intentions will take us as his abilities grow. Among other details, this could reveal more about other Brandons, if not the Brandon the Builder himself. We're not much closer to answering the question of whether the original Brandon the Builder is buried beneath Winterfell and the crypts that he may have himself designed, but perhaps common sense can give us some confidence here. There are other possibilities, but where else would he be buried? Exactly. The first King of Winter, the first Lord of Winterfell, surely he got a burial worthy of a figure who lived as a legend in their own lifetime, and that's true even if the stories are exaggerated. Whoever the first Stark was, they didn't luck into it. One doesn't simply walk into the ancient north, build a house, a castle, and more, all of which last eons by accident or mere good fortune. Outro. Whether or not there were multiple Brandon the Builders in ancient days is perhaps less important than the legacy established by that Brandon, or those Brandons. And whether Brandon is hundreds of years old, or seven years old, winter is coming is a warning, yes. But it's also a duty. Lions may roar, roses may grow, theirs may be the fury, and some do not so. Those houses have held sway for as long as House Stark, and they all have ancient founding figures they claim to originate from. Yet what good is a lion or a rose or a kraken or a stag against the deadly cold? Who do you want in charge when winter comes? That House Stark still exists and still has the support of so many is testament to Lord Eddard's claim that the pack survives. There's a good chance Ned got that from his father and Rickard from his. Who knows how far back those words go, but we wouldn't be surprised if the sentiment, if not the phrase itself, goes all the way back to the beginning. Brandon the Builder's foresight and actions have helped countless other packs survive throughout the eons, after all. As amazing as he was, he could not have done it all alone. His own pack may not have been recorded by history, but the implication is strong. Winterfell, the Wall, the Old Gods, the Old Powers, that's a lot for a pack of Brandons to accomplish, let alone one, a rare being, with both the disposition, capability, and the privilege of birth all marshaled towards the goal of establishing a future, a sanctuary with safety from the darkness and cold, whether it comes tomorrow or in 10,000 years.
Thanks to Crowfood's daughter for her valuable contributions to this episode. You can find her at the Disputed Lands on YouTube. Thanks to McCall Schick for the quotes. You can find her at Ink As Rain on Twitter or at the Podcast of Surprise Witcher Book Club with me. Zach Louie of Game of Owns did the headers. Thanks to Joey Townsend for the music and Jesse Koval for the outro cover. Thanks to our Patreon supporters. This one's for y'all. High Lord Jacob Hayes, the Doom Opal, Captain of the Shimmering Tide, Relentless as the Seas, Hand of the King. Lord Giuliano of House Yu, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the Omni Knight. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lord Brendan Lannister, the Bloodline, Ruler of Castle Everroar, Warden of the South. Jenny the Just, Captain of the Ghost Ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but has recently been sighted near Volantis, if the tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade Red Frost. He knows the true story of Brandon the Builder, but he's not telling. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher, the Titan's Binger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. White Walker patrons including Araya Flint of the Mountain Flints, captured by the Weeper only to be raised in the Valley of the Milkwater, Blue Eyes and Golden Memories. Alexander Greyblood, first of the first men now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword Pale Frost. Our small council consists of Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Taylor of House Lineberry, Strength of Stone, Will of Iron, Master of Coin. Grand Maester Bloody Ben Blackwood. Lord Chris B. of House Baelish. Always keep your foes confused. Master of Whispers. Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor. Master of Karate. Friendship for everyone. And ships. Lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyrlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood, dual wielder of Valyrian Short Swords Glorious Morning and Little Light Wise, sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood, first forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Casey Stark of House Acres. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon and heir to Bloodraven. Lady Mara of House Stark, Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woodswitch. Her castle features werewood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow, the Twilight Star, Bastard Daughter of Dane, Wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. Jason Stark, Second Son of the North, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Sword Bloodbath, Lord of Castle Whitewood, The Chill is Real. Suck-Ass Gamer, Master of Soap and Clay, Aminda Pinkwolf, Lady and Ruler of Castle Whitefast, the Ice Emboldens. Lord Goodkill McGee, Ruler of Castle Over Yonder. King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Queen's High Council includes Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadowcat. In the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose ring and rod and mask are Quartz Crystal, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Pen, Fire and Ink. The Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, Master of Whispers. Lady Wolfbird, Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. 
Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, prime rider of the Rising Hills, Master of Laws. Our Kingsguard is led by Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, Valyrian sword Onyx Abyss, Sardine the White, Knight of the Black Star, Gregor Snow called Snowbear, a bastard of Winterfell, Vaughn of House Furster, Sigil as mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on light blue field, Visenya let us hold Dark Sister once, Sir Bateman, the Dark Knight, Sir Roland de Stark, Gunslinger Knight of the Winter Kings, back from a 20-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. Thanks. Our Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, James the Green, Lord of the Meadows, Keeper of the Trial of Grasses, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you begin, Nora Neko, Archmaester Vena, whose ring rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding, and Laura Voro, and Laura Voros, the Lady of Infinity. Our Beard Guard is led by Lord Commander George the Golden, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, and Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the multifaceted beard of platinum, red and brown. Stay frosty. Last but not least, our Night's Watch, commanded by Lord Commander Richard the Ligerheart, Wielder of Barry's Anklebreaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes. Motto, Go Blue. First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First Ranger Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname. First Steward Sir Zack of House Wild, Lord Shredder of the Spiral, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe Grail. Thanks, everyone, and Valar Reredus.